Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. Markets shrug off higher consumer prices. The economy is in the process of rebounding. Will the Federal Reserve have its own digital currency? The financial stories that shape our world. Many people think the yields are just going to keep marching up. We have more spending coming out of Congress. One of the big questions, I think, on investors' minds, inflation. Through the eyes of the most influential voices. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary. Brian Moynihan of Bank of America. Wells Fargo CEO, Charlie Sharp. Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston. From Bloomberg Radio. Coming to terms with a pandemic that just won't quit and with a Russian threat to Ukraine. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. The week began with President Biden confronting Russian President Putin over Russia's military buildup along Ukraine's borders, with National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan reporting that the U.S. made it clear that it would take action in response to any invasion told President Putin directly that if Russia further invades Ukraine, the United States and our European allies would respond with strong economic measures. But as important as geopolitics are, the continued fight over COVID remains the number one thing we all confront, with spikes in cases and fears of Omicron leading to shutdowns. As British Prime Minister Boris Johnson said, his country was urging people to stay home. From Monday, you should work from home if you can. But there was also hope, hope that vaccinations and boosters would offer us a better alternative to shutting down and staying home. And Johnson & Johnson CEO Alex Gorski expressed confidence that science will help us get past the crisis in the new year. Obviously, we're navigating our way through the pandemic, uh, and there's likely to be twists and turns and ups and downs. That being said, I'm, I'm optimistic. 
And in the end, despite some high inflation numbers, the markets decided to choose hope over anxiety this week, giving equities their best rally in 10 months and taking the S&P 500 to an all-time high, gaining over 3.8% on the week, with the Nasdaq just behind posting 3.6% gains, while the yield curve steepened just a little bit, leaving the 10-year yield still below 1.5%. To explain what she makes of all this, we welcome now our contributor, Afsani Beshlas. She's the founder and CEO of Rock Creek. So, Afsani, we really need your advice here. What's going on? The market's really on a tear this week, by and large, after last week sort of selling up a bit, despite the inflation, despite the, despite the virus. Why? David, great to be on with you today. And it's again about COVID, right? COVID news were really bad when we heard about Omicron and uh, COVID news this week as people got more data on Omicron and not that it's not a problem, but seems to be milder, seems to be spreading, but not, uh, you know, not as scary as some variants could have been, I think has calmed the market. Plus, people are sort of moving on where there's more clarity on the Fed um, position on both taper and probably interest rate increases. But of course, we have the inflation uh, scare at the same time coming up. Well, and that was the question. How sure are we about the Fed? I mean, Jay Powell has made it clear they're going to advance, it appears, in the next meeting coming up, uh, the tapering of the bond buying. But some people are saying he's going to go faster than even he thinks, and they may end up at a higher point. What do you think? And can he do that without really rocking the boat so much that it hurts the economy? I agree that uh, tapering will start sooner and go faster than was his original plan. And, um, and I think that it is uh, overdue. Uh, but the important thing is that the Fed has really had got two jobs, right? It's inflation and employment. And on the employment side, there is sort of a new twist that both, uh, you may remember, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has been emphasizing, but so has um, Fed Chair Powell, which is equitable employment and more equity in growth. And I think that is where you know, it may lead to slightly different actions, which might mean that while inflation, you know, is what, about 6.8%, it might go up to close to 7% and peak around 7%. But my view is that it will come down to about half of that, um, you know, towards the end of next year, as these supply chains go away, but also as some, hopefully some of the build back better um, actual actions get implemented and we start having some of these supply chain issues get resolved a little faster. Afsani, you at Rock Creek are an investor rather than a trader. So you look over the longer term. You're not in yeah. and out of the market, as I understand it, constantly. At the same time, some people are saying now we should get used to higher inflation, not 6.8%, but significantly higher than we have on on trend. If it's true, if we're set for 3% or even 4%, Larry Summers is not saying maybe 4%, what does that do to an investor? How does that change your portfolio? So two things. One is depends on how this um, inflation gets translated. For example, a lot of people say, you know, wages are going up and that's a bad thing. But really, in Economics 101, depends on exactly where the wage growth is happening. If the wage growth is happening at the lowest income levels, and that is actually the case, uh, but don't forget, those income, those wages are so very low that, a, you know, 20% increase is very little. On a, on a very small base, right? So if you have higher growth on wages, what you're going to have is potentially more ability to buy goods by that group, uh, which has a higher consumption rate than higher income goods, and 
uh, and higher growth in the longer run. Now, the other side of this is, as I think some of these very short, short, I would call it shorter term, not just supply chain, you know, but the fact that people were reading about inflation got them to buying more. The fact that we have some issues with specific issues because of COVID that happened with, uh, for example, not, you know, car companies selling their fleets or not uh, investing last year. We're seeing that impact this year. As they invest next year, we're not going to have those same pressures. So, in you know, we might be closer to, my, my uh, assumption is closer to three, three and a half percent, but that will go down over time. So not so concerned about that. Thank you so much. It's always a pleasure to have you with us. That's Afsani Bachelors. She is the founder and the CEO of Rock Creek. Coming up, we get a preview of what to expect in the new year from the chairman and CEO of Bank of America, Brian Moynihan. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. This is Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. 2021 has been another wild year with the continued fight against the pandemic, continued fiscal and monetary stimulus and growing inflation concerns buffeting investors. But as we come to the end of the year, we asked Brian Moynihan of Bank of America to take a look at what he sees ahead in 2022. So, Brian, it's coming to the end of the year. Let's look forward to 2022 and what you could anticipate. First of all, let me ask you. How uncertain is it? Because right now we're looking at the various banks and their projections. For example, on S&P 500, where it ends up, it's a wider range than we've seen in a long time. It's like 20%. Does that indicate there's less certainty about where we're headed in 2022? 
I think if you look at the economic projections, they're closer bunched. Those are, have to do with multiple evaluations uh, coming in. Some of the, you know, you've seen the IPOs trade down, and I think people are starting to say, okay, this, this can't keep going in one direction. So you're seeing start to, people start to disperse, I think, around this question of where they think the market valuation is and whether the earnings growth can sustain. And if the earnings growth slows down, theoretically the market valuation ought to slow down first by just math and then by multiple contractions. So I think, I think that's more the thing. But it, if you look at the economy side, you know, we're at 4.2% for next year and 2.2% for the year after. And I think you know, that's, you know, that's a slowdown from this year, but the reality is it sort of has to slow down. I mean, in, in, in the Federal raise rates to make sure it does because inflation and other things. So I think we, we be, feel very strongly what we see in our customer base is, is consistent with 4% plus growth what we see on the commercial side and consumer side. Now the risk to that is still this pandemic. And so the other thing you see is dispersion when you have a, you know, this new variant surface and people, you see people taking different actions around the world and will shut down and will not. People start to make decisions based on that and in terms of their valuations and points. And I, the good news is between, because of the great, you know, healthcare systems we have and great science we have, you know, the, the vaccines out there, it's effective. It may have to be changed and played with, but you're seeing the impact less so far. Knock on wood and we'll see what happens. But that's a big uncertainty. That, that trumps every other thing you're talking about. You're not an epidemiologist, as far as I know. I'm not, yeah. goodness knows. But Tiffany, you talk to a lot of experts. You have people that you talk to all the time. Your best guess, do you think by the end of 2022, we will have this largely behind us, the pandemic? Not to say it's all gone, but yeah. we won't have to deal with it day in and day out. You know, I, I think the risk is a, a variant that the vaccines really don't work against. And, and so if you unwind the decision path by uh, the, the people in charge of government and making rules, it's going to be if my ICUs are overwhelmed, if my hospitals are overwhelmed, I have to slow down activity to keep people away from each other, you know, to avoid that outcome because you can't have people dying in the hall. I mean, it's just not fair. And so remember back in the early pandemic, the field hospitals were being built. We needed 30,000 ventilators. We didn't use them all. But, and, and, but the good news is the treatments and the monoclonal antibodies and pills and all those things. So I'm not, I can't make the, uh, the medical prediction, but our experts say this, we are, we've gone from that where it was just immediately had to get people away with all these tools, the treatment, uh, vaccines, understanding the disease better, the speed at which it can be adapted to, to where, you know, so the waggle around an outcome's faster, right? So if you look, the market, there's a chart the other day that you saw, you know, it took this long for the market to recover the first time, and it's gone in each time a new variant's come up, and that's because of confidence that you can get behind it. I think that means you're in an, you know, the endemic type of situation as opposed to the pandemic, which means we're going to be living with this, and there's going to be ebbs and flows, and I think that's what people are foreseeing 22 is about. Now, it'll take a little while to get used to that fact, you know, and, 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 and that'll be interesting to see how society adopts, but, you know, with, with what's going on in other countries, you're seeing them start to adjust because there's one fundamental difference differences, the vaccine levels are just not there, they are in the United States. So the judgment by a person here, given the same set of facts, could be different based on that fact alone. Putting aside the pandemic and recognize that's a big thing to put aside, but put, taking that out of the equation for a second, when you take a look at the markets, uh, typically valuations would be based on corporate earnings, and that should be a function of growth. You say growth looks pretty solid, maybe it won't be as high as it was this year, but pretty solid. But there's another factor, which is also margins and profitability. How concerned are you going into 2022 about inflation and their ability to erode corporate margins? So at the end of the consumer, they have more money to spend. They're all they're employed and wages are growing fast. So their ability to absorb price increases, you know, is there. Now, people don't like to give them price increases, and that's why companies have different strategies and different pricing schemes. But the reality is, is you'd be more afraid if, if the, and I'm not sure, 
if the pressure came through on the supply side without the consumers in the condition they're in, I'd be more afraid of that question. And right now, companies tell us they're able to pass through price, either B2B or B2C. In other words, um, and, and shortages mean people buy no matter what. So, you know, restaurant pricing, hotel pricing, trip pricing, you know, people run special and stuff, it's all elevated and, and that'll come th through. So I think you have to start with the consumer being in great shape, having money, employed, and wages rising and frankly, freed up to do more, you know? And that's, then you back into that. Think about all the cars that didn't get sold because of chip shortage. At some point, the chips are there, and those, you know, that 16 million down to 12 or 13 million rate moves back up. And so I think there's, that's just that housing. You know, people are still buying homes. There's a shortage of homes, therefore there'll be demand there. Gotta get prices back in control, frankly, there. But, so I think, yeah, I think you, I'd be more afraid of the margin question for companies if you didn't have these, you know, in the end of the day, it's a consumer drives the economy, two thirds of the activity, whatever the right words are, if they didn't have the money to spend, and they do. It looks right now, from what uh, the Fed chair has said, that we're looking at 2022 as being a pivot year with respect to monetary support for the economy. Uh, how concerned are you about the rapidity with which they tighten that money supply? Because theoretically, we could do some damage. Yeah, it, well, they have to They have to slow down. You don't raise rates and expect the economy not to change uh, uh, outcome when you have inflation. And so that's the economics 101 about the thing. But let's let's back up to it. This, this Fed, you have same general people, 2019 economy, economy excise today, excise, it's gonna be bigger probably this quarter. Unemployment 3.6, we're at 4.2 already at the year end. We'll see where we are, but my guess is closer to that number. The uh, consumer, all that fiscal stimulus went on. And so you think about all that and you're saying, wait a second, you know, the wages have grown dramatically since then and I expect to grow faster rate. I think they have to bring the rates up. The pace will always be based on their view, but I think what's more, going to be more on people's minds goes back to the question of the pathway the, of the virus. We, have we won the war or have we won most of the war and the war is still out in front of us? And I, I, I hope and pray that the first is true, but I think that'll affect their pace more than anything else because they're always trying to make the judgment because they're making the judgment based on the facts and it actually has impact in the future. But I think from a math, you know, the employment, full employment, stable pricing, you, you could move rates up and, and relatively quickly. I think it'll just be slow because I think no matter what we think we know, we'll know other things about this virus every day, week, month, and I think that will keep changing their ebbs and flows. But they're gonna be careful not to get ahead of it, but on the other hand, they have to be resolute to get it, uh, get the rate structure back. And the rate structure then was 2% Fed funds and 2% tenure. Two, two, you're saying, so what's different? Same size economy, same unemployment, more money in people's accounts, more spending, more final demand. At some point, you've gotta bring the structure back. Thanks to Brian Moynihan, Chairman and CEO of Bank of America. Coming up, we convene our roundtable together in the studio with contributors Larry Summers of Harvard and Steve Ratner of Willett Advisors. That's next on Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. I am delighted to say that for the first time in nearly two years, we are back around our real roundtable in New York with our contributor Larry Summers of Harvard and also our contributor Steve Radner of Willett Advisors, and they are responsible for investing the personal and philanthropic assets of Michael R. Bloomberg, our founder and majority shareholder. So, Larry, let's start with you. On Friday, we got CPI numbers. As predicted, they came in hot. Headline number 6.8%. You've been talking about this for some time. What are we learning about inflation that we didn't know before? We're having it confirmed that it's not transitory. 
And I think everybody recognizes now with the statements from Chairman Powell, with the statements from Secretary Yellen, that this isn't going to just go away of its own uh, accord, that the Fed's going to have to take substantial action to control inflation unless there's some kind of other adverse development, a crack in markets or something of that kind. But we've put in motion uh, for the first time in 40 years excessive inflation caused by overheating of the economy, and that's going to have to be worked out of the system, and that's probably not going to be such an easy thing. Well, let's talk about that, how easy it is. Steve, do you agree with that analysis? And if so, what are the prospects that, in fact, the Fed can slow this thing down without really causing some damage to the economy? Well, I, I completely agree with Larry, and I think you have to recognize it's a problem that, that was not created in two months. It was a problem created over the last two years. And so it's going to take multiple years, certainly, to work it out. Uh, I, I in no way want to predict that we're going back to where we were in the late 70s, but I was sitting in the Washington Bureau of the New York Times when Paul Volcker announced his new inflation policy, and I watched all that happen. And it took multiple, multiple years and a terrible recession to get it out of the system. Uh, so it is going to be painful, and it's going to be painful for growth. It's going to be painful for jobs. And we do have an election coming next year, which uh, is going to be complicated. So, so, Larry, listening to the White House, they admit there's inflation. Uh, they still say it may be transitory. And one of the things they point to is gas prices. They said that's really artificially spiked it up. That's leveling off. Maybe we don't have as big a problem. What about the difference between headline and so-called core? Look, there surely are transitory elements in inflation. No question about it. But here's the thing, David. If you look at annual rates, if you take this month's number and you annualize it, it's 10%. So a lot of that is no doubt transitory. But to say that a lot of it is transitory is not to say that it's going to get anywhere near price stability on its own. And there's another point, which is we always talk about the things that are high and might be uh, transitory. House prices on every index, rental prices on every index except the CPI are up 20% over the last year. The vast majority of that is not yet in the CPI, so it's probably coming. Every business person I talk to says the same thing. They say, we're going to have much higher labor costs going forward to retain our people. We're going to have higher input costs. And it's kind of OK, because we're going to be able to pass it on. Well, that's an environment where there are pressures in many places for rising prices, not for uh, Falling prices, you know, one of the sectors that's been very benign over the last, time, last while is medical services. But as you see all the nurses who are uh, quitting, there's going to be pressure there. As you see all the backlogs of elective procedures from the last year or two, there are going to be backlogs uh, there. So I think we're going to entrench um, inflation way above 2%, perhaps in the 4% or even higher uh, range, unless something happens to break the current mood, to break uh, the current trend. And I don't think it's going to be three rate increases or two rate increases uh, next year. I mean, remember this crucially. Monetary policy today is far looser than it was a year ago. Looser is measured by real interest rates. Looser is measured by financial conditions. Looser is measured by the size of the Federal Reserve's uh, 
balance sheet. So we've got looser monetary policy, even as job vacancies are way up, and even as inflation is way up as well. So Steve, uh, Larry says we should be having rate hikes. He's been talking about this for the better part of a year now. Uh, do you think we should have more than three rate hikes next week, next month, next year? Well, I don't know yet. We have, you know, obviously, uh, as Janet Yellen used to say, you know, the Fed is data driven, and right. you take each each month or quarter at a time. But I agree with, uh, I agree with pretty much everything everything Larry said. But I would just make this point: like we talk about oil having leveled off, right. there's no guarantee that oil is going to stay where it is. It, it, you know. The, it's not a function of some specific supply disruption or something that's going to be easily corrected. It's largely a function of global demand, and global demand isn't going down at the moment. And so I think there is a lot of, uh, not just in core, I think there's a lot of inflation that is really stuck in the economy. And yeah, I think, I think Larry's right. If the Fed is really serious about getting back to an average of 2%, it is going to take a lot more than three rate hikes over some period of time. Okay, so that was terrific. Great start here. We're going to come back with Larry Summers and Steve Ratter just short time from now to address the really pressing problem of COVID-19 and now Omicron. And this is Wall Street Week on Bloomberg. Today's show is sponsored by Public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high-yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Marcus, a higher rate than Wealthfront, a higher rate than Betterment, frankly, a higher rate than Capital One, a higher rate than Ally, a higher rate than Barclays, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express, too. So, if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing. Member FINRA SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Wall Street Week with David Weston from Bloomberg Radio. This is Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. We are back with our real roundtable in New York with Larry Summers of Harvard and Steve Radner of Willett Advisors. So, Steve, let me turn to you as an investor on behalf of Mike Bloomberg. Uh, one of the big stories, not just the week, this week, but this year, is the COVID virus. Now we have the Omicron variant. None of us, I dare say, are epidemiologists. We can't know what's going on. And by the way, even if we were, I don't know that we could predict what's happening with the virus. But as an investor, what do you do about that? Because it could well affect your investments. 
Of course, it, it, has, it has affected our investments, and I would say in several decades of investing, I've never been in a position where I had to analyze things like this that went way beyond the normal parameters you look at as an investor. And so it has introduced a level of volatility into the markets. It's, level, it's introduced a level of inefficiency into the markets. You see stocks reacting in strange ways and, uh, and, and not anticipating events the way the market is usually good at. And so it has made life very, very complicated. And as an economist, Larry, one of the things that it may well affect is the supply chain problem that you just mentioned in the last segment. I think one of the big questions about any time we're talking pandemic is the way I like to say it is, how does it affect the number of bartenders relative to the number of bar customers? Because the thing about the pandemic is that it affects both demand and supply. And so you know it's going to be bad for the level of output because there's going to be less demand and less supply. But with less demand and less supply, you don't know what it's going to mean for prices. And that's one of the puzzles in a lot of the discussion. Everybody said a year ago that, a year and a half ago, that we needed all kinds of stimulus because um, of the pandemic coming. Now, there are many people who say the Fed doesn't need to tighten because the pandemic is going to end and people are going to come back to work. Those can't both be, or unlikely to both uh, be proper logical uh, propositions. I think Omicron does introduce substantial uncertainty uh, into the future and probably even more for emerging markets than for the United States and, uh, and Europe. I, it does certainly put an extra range of uncertainty. And I also think that we shouldn't be so callous as to analyze it entirely through the prism of markets or the prism of GDP statistics. Even if we don't, even if it doesn't have any effect on mobility and lockup policies and people are still flying uh, planes, a much more pervasive uh, virus is going to have a set of human consequences. Well, it's a fair point. I know you'd agree with that, Steve. First and foremost, it's a matter of, of personal health and safety. But it does affect investments and does affect money as, as a practical matter. You have investments around the world, not just in the United States. Are you seeing a divergence among the markets according to actually the COVID? I mean, right now we see very different approaches. I mean, China really locks down pretty quickly to try to protect themselves. Europe, parts of it now are starting to really shut things down. Do you see a divergence in investment based on that? Not, not really. You know, they are pursuing different strategies, but I'm not sure whether the COVID stra strategies are uh, the biggest driver of economic differences. I mean, for example, China, there's an enormous amount going on in China. Uh, President Xi, we, we don't have time to talk about it today, but he's fundamentally changing the nature of China's approach to the market economy. That is far more important than the fact that China has its own approach to COVID versus how England approaches it or how Austria approaches it or this or that. So, so, Larry, what about that, the, the approach of shutting down as opposed to vaccinating? Uh, two very different courses have different economic effects. Yeah, they do, certainly while you're locking down. I think what I have been struck by in general is that the policies seem to have more effect on the timing of the disease than they do on the overall level of the disease. That if you lock up, then you reduce the disease substantially for a while, but you have to unlock at some point, and then you get most of the cases that you avoided. If you look at the different countries within Europe, there are a lot of different strategies, but less difference in result. 
part of what I think has to be a concern, you know, when people talk about China, they always talk about Evergrande, and that is certainly a very big uh, concern. But China, which has had nothing much happen that has increased its immunity levels, uh, virtually none of the disease, vaccines that appear to not be nearly as strong as the ones we've used, how they're going to work their way out of their totally locked up situation, I think is a very big challenge. And the longer they stay locked up, the bigger that challenge is going to be. No, they're going to have Olympics, which will open them up. And Steve? Well, they're not going to open up for the Olympics. They're going to do the Olympics in a bubble. And uh, look, what I've heard about China and their vaccination strategy, nobody knows, of course. The speculation among people who know something is that between now and a year from now, when the next party Congress occurs, they will figure out how to vaccinate people with vaccines that actually work, and they will then start to open up. Is that right? I have, a, I have no idea. But let me just say two other quick things. One, I do think we're learning to live economically with the virus. I, I, I sense among my colleagues, among people I deal with, so far no one is flustered that much by Omicron. We're still in the office. People are still having meetings and so on. And it's something we're going to have to live with, like hijackings on airplanes. You just have another way to approach it. The second quick thing I'd say is I don't believe that the reason people are not working now is because of the virus, generally, obviously exceptions. I think the reason they're working right now, frankly, is many of them don't have to. They have strong balance sheets. They don't want to go back to an Amazon warehouse. I don't want to go to an Amazon warehouse. And so they're taking their time and figuring out what they want to do. And there are 11 million jobs open out there, and they know they can get one whenever they want one. Yeah, really important point. Let's wrap this up now, looking forward to 2022, if we could. Larry, start with you. As you look forward to the new year, what do you think the biggest downside risk is that we face? I think there are three risks. Omicron, inflation, and uh, overextended markets are the three uh, biggest risks we face, and I'm not sure in what, uh, not sure in what order. And I'd also say the geopolitics of China, Russia, and Iran, all of which are potential sources of crisis in the next year, is an additional uh, concern. Give us one minute on testing. Uh, you identified Omicron as a big risk. Are we testing enough in this country? No, we we we're fixing it now, but we're a year late to pervasive, cheap tests that you can give to guests to your home and get a result in 15 minutes. And the faster we move on that and the stronger we move on that and the more universally we move on that, the better it will be. So, Steve, same question to you. Uh, Looking at 2022, biggest risk? I agree with Larry's three risks, but I think the first one and the third one are linked. And I think when you get to the question of why are the markets so, uh, so frothy, I think my own personal view is that the vast majority of the reason is the Fed, that when you take interest rates to zero, you know, it's Tina, what we call Tina, there is no alternative and people come into the markets. And what you see happening right now is that every time there's talk of interest rates going up, the stocks that get hardest are the growth stocks because their cash flows are so far out in the future that when you put a discount rate on it, it, values go down as interest rates go up. And so I think the market is not really responding to uh, you know, international strategic issues. It might if they be, became more severe. I think the market's responding almost entirely to interest rates. And if the Fed starts down this path, I think it is going to be a, a tough ride for the market. Well, that's my question, because it starts down the path. We've had it pretty clearly from Jay Powell. They're going to start down the path. The question of how fast and how far. So do you think, would you feel better if there was a bit more of a taper tantrum? 
I'm not asking for a taper tantrum, and obviously part of why I think the Fed has moved so slowly is to avoid a taper tantrum. I think they've successfully uh, mitigated the effects of stopping the asset uh, purchases, the $120 billion a month. I think the market's accepted that. I'm not sure the market's ready for three interest rate increases yeah. next year, and I think that may come as a shock to them. Yeah, I'm not sure they price it in. This has been a great roundtable back again after almost two years. Many thanks to Larry Summers of Harvard and Steve Ratner of Willett Advisors. Finally, one more thought. The geopolitics of sports, yet once again. This week, the United States made it official it would not be sending any delegation to the Beijing Winter Olympics next year. The Biden administration will not send any diplomatic or official representation to the Beijing 2022 Winter Olympics and Paralympic Games, given the PRC's ongoing genocide and crimes against uh, humanity in Xinjiang and other human rights abuses. The White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki said that the administration would be backing Team USA 100%, albeit from a pretty big distance. This is hardly the first time that we've seen the Olympics used as a lever in geopolitics, going all the way back to the 1980 Olympics in Moscow, when President Jimmy Carter didn't just keep American officials away, he kept U.S. athletes from competing after Russia invaded Afghanistan. I can't say at this moment what other nations will not go to the Summer Olympics in Moscow. Ours will not go. And the effect? Well, Russian troops stayed in Afghanistan for another nine years. But what might hurt more than the loss of a few officials up in the stands at the games might be if corporate sponsors pulled out their support, something that Richard Haas of the Council on Foreign Relations has warned about. Right now, in a, in a world in which corporations are far more vulnerable uh, to political pressures from investors and others, I wouldn't be surprised if both governments and corporations essentially decided to hold back from China. And then there's the threat that China just might not get to see some sports at all, as in the case of the World Tennis Association, which has pulled all of its matches from China out of concern over the fate of China's only number one tennis player in history, Ms. Peng Shuai, after she accused a former senior government official of sexual assault, and then she disappeared. Longtime Olympics official Dick Pound explains. All kinds of people were trying to get in touch with her to make sure that she was alive and healthy and not in captivity and all of those sorts of things. But if we really want to get China's attention, maybe we're better off using sports as a carrot instead of a stick. Just remember all the way back in 1971 what happened when a simple table tennis match paved the way for President Nixon to go to China. And the rest, as they say, is history. That does it for this episode of Wall Street Week. I'm David Weston. This is Bloomberg. See you next week. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.